We love music, don't we? There's something about it that moves us uniquely like nothing else can. There are songs that for us become markers of moments, of memories, of people, songs that we connect to so, so deeply. And so if I could, I'd like to take you on a brief musical journey for a moment this morning, if that's okay. So we have songs that remind us of our first kiss. Songs that remind us of our first dance. The first time we drove a car on our own. Sometimes we have songs that remind us of the first time we felt sorrow or grief. These songs have immense value to us. They remind us of people, of places, of memories. They can even transport us through time. Songs can make us want to roll the windows down and scream at the top of our lungs. They can even have those of us who are most deficient in the art of groove start dancing. You know you want to. Go ahead. See, songs can take a truth, an idea, a philosophy, and they can boil it down into simple phrasing and melody that helps drive a point home. They can stir up in us emotion of happiness and sadness. They can become anthems of revolution. I think it's time we stop. Or they can be anthems of hope and restoration. We love music, don't we? We all have favorite songs, songs that mean something deeply to us or mark those special moments in our lives. So show of hands, how many of you remember putting a cassette tape into a boom box to record your favorite songs off the radio? Yes, so many of you. This is awesome. And so many of you in the same boat as me, how many of you made true mixtapes for your friends or for your girlfriend, yeah? Okay, some of you are like, what's a mixtape? So mixtapes are these pla plastic rectangles and they have these little spokes that spun tape on them and you could record your favorite music on them for your friends if you put scotch tape over the little square on top. <laughs> Anybody with me, you remember? Okay, so some of you, it was kind of like pirating music before the internet and Napster and I realize that some of you after the year 2000 still don't know what Napster is and so that's okay. <laughs> Anyway, modern advances in listening to music have brought us a long way. They've given us the ability to literally ask a tiny person in our phones to play our favorite songs at the drop of a hat, right? And we make playlists for everything. I use Spotify all the time. Any Spotify people in the room? Okay, a couple of you. And so I have playlists for, for road trips. I have playlists for working out. I even have a playlist that's just called Sad Songs. 
and it's just full of my favorite sad songs. I promise you I'm okay. Joy of the Lord is my strength. Everything is good. But when R.E.M. comes on and starts singing about how everybody hurts, I just feel it right here. It's just so good for me anyway. Um, we love music, but why? Why do we love music so much? What is this? See, I believe music is woven into the fabric of our being. I believe that God created music. See, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We learn that God himself sings over his people. See, I believe this is one of the reasons why God inspired men to write the Psalms. I believe that God loves music just as much as we do. And we love music because he loves music and we are created in his image. So the fact that we love song reflects on the fact that we are created by the most creative and intentional artist to ever exist. The Psalms serve us as a playlist, if you will. A playlist filled with songs and poetry that are, remind us of these deep truths concerning who God is and what he has done for us. So during our time of Selah this morning, our, our time of reflection on Psalm 139, we dug into this text just a little bit, and it's where we're going to be today. But I want to give you a little bit of context surrounding the Psalms as a whole, sort of before we dive in. See, the Psalms and the Proverbs, for that matter, are often misread. They're often misread as a law or as history. And the Psalms are not law. The Proverbs are not law. Okay? The Proverbs are wisdom literature, and they show us how a wise person is to live. And just a side note, you are not the wise person of Proverbs. Okay? Nor am I. Jesus is the wise son of Proverbs. He's the only one who can live completely wise and without error. So don't make the mistake of reading yourself into that text as the wise person. You can't be who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus. It's something that we're going to come back to over and over again. In the same way, the Psalms are not law. The Psalms are poetic literature. And in this type of literature, we see the psalmist writing down various interactions with God. They record their feelings about God's providence their emotions concerning his sovereignty and reign. And some of the psalms, they are songs of lament. They would belong on my sad songs playlist, where the author of the psalm literally cries out to God in sadness, saying, when will you ever deliver me? Some are messianic in nature. They point to the coming Messiah. They point to a Messiah that is to come and to save Israel. There are also imprecatory psalms that express anger and violence over sin. There are psalms of worship and praise, and there are even songs of ascent. Psalms that were literally meant to be sung out loud by the people of Israel as they were going up to the temple to worship. There are all kinds of psalms, and just like with Proverbs, we are mistaken if we read the psalms with ourselves at the center of them. God is the focus of the psalms not us. Scripture would remind us that it is not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. See, Scripture is not about us. It's about Jesus. If you could repeat after me, it's all about 
Jesus. So if you're a blank filler, I think you've got one on your notes. That's it. That's all you get. Sorry, everything else just comes from the brain space. Um, so we're going to see more on that later, but let's begin to dig into Psalm 139, okay? So we've got a little bit of context for what the Psalms are. Let's dig into this specific one for us today. Psalm 139, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. Stop. So this is good. Right out of the gate, we know who the author of the Psalm is. It's King David, the same David who slayed Goliath, one and the same. And we see who, writes, who he writes this song for. He writes it to the choir master. Now, as a pastor of worship, I find this both intriguing and refreshing. One, because it's good to know that David also uh, was a, a king who gave songs to his choir master and said, hey, sing this one. Uh, that happens to me a lot. There's, you, you guys don't know anything about that? You don't ever give me songs? I'm just playing. My Facebook message feed is full. They're really good. Um, and as a pastor of worship, there are also times when I forget why we do what we do. And it's good to know that I'm not the only one who forgets. See, I can get caught up in the songs that we sing. I can get caught up in the style in which we do them. I can get lost in the way that we're going to brand a series or how we're going to convey a biblical truth. If I'm not careful so much, I forget why we do it in the first place. And in these moments, I need reminded of who God is. I need reminded that the point of all of this is Jesus, that it's all about him. Do you ever need reminded of that? We all do, don't we? We all forget. We forget it's about Jesus. And that's why it's our mission here at NCC to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. And I ask the question, why couldn't it just be to make much of Jesus? Why not just stop there? Because the everyday gives us the when, and the everyone gives us the who. Otherwise, we might be prone to forget that the when and the who matter. See, we would be content to show up on a Sunday, sing some songs we like, because what we like is the most important. We'd sit in comfortable chairs in an air-conditioned room, because if they, are too, if they are too hard, or if it is too hot or too cold, we couldn't possibly be troubled to worship God or to respond to the scriptures. And then we would likely listen to a passage preached that we would describe as both challenging enough to stir our souls, but not challenging enough to actually change anything in our lives. Because we would forget that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Church, let us always believe that to be true. That it is always about him, and it is not about us. Are you seeing it? We haven't even hit verse 1 yet. Here we go. I believe that Psalm 139 divides up naturally into these three different sections, and each section emphasizes a different aspect of God. First, it, asks, it looks at his omniscience, that God is all-knowing, and we see that in verses 1 through 6. Then it looks at his omnipresence, that God has no physical boundaries or barriers and can be and is everywhere all at once. We see that in verses 7 through 18. And then lastly, his omnipotence, that God is all-powerful and sovereign over all things, is seen in verses 19 through 24. And these three are seen throughout the passage, but primarily they're connected to these sections. So in verse 1, we begin, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. What beautiful imagery here of a God that seeks after us. Notice it's not the psalmist who initiates this relationship. It is God. He is the one who seeks and searches and knows us. The psalmist is describing a God who is all-knowing, who is acquainted with all of our ways. He knows the path before us. Christian, take hope in the fact that God loves you, that he is great, and that you don't have to be in control. I hope you find comfort in that. You don't need to have all the answers to your predicament. You don't have to have all the steps laid out because you serve a God who does. Our God is omniscient. He is all-knowing, and we can trust in his knowledge over all things. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So there are two things here that I love. The language that we see in verse 5, this hemming in behind and before, initially this sounds like protection language. It sounds as if the psalmist is being completely protected and surrounded by God, right? And that's a, a beautiful imagery, but that's not actually the language here. See, the hemming in is actually reflected in the original language as time references. It speaks to the eternality of God. That God is both behind us in our past. He is before us in our future. And he lays his hands upon us in our present. The psalmist's response to this is a perfect contrast to the all-knowing God. He says that it is too wonderful for him to comprehend his lack of knowledge and understanding to wrap his mind around a God who is infinitely knowledgeable, his poetry at its finest. The psalmist's response is what ours should be, awe, that we have a God who is completely all-knowing. See, this portion of the psalm reminds us again that we don't have to be in control and that quite honestly, we can't be in control because all of life, the greatest pursuits of knowledge and understanding are not actually about us. Instead, our limited knowledge points us to the need for one who is all-knowing. It points us to Jesus. Would you say it with me? It's all about Jesus. Next, we look at the omnipresence of God. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The hope that we gain here is that God is always with us. Have you ever felt alone? Felt lost? Felt like no one cared? 
My friend, may you hope in a God that over and over again has shown us his faithfulness. He is present with you here even in this very moment and his love for you is boundless. There is nowhere you can run to get away from him. There is nothing you can do to remove your to remove the love of our creator God for you from yourself. There's nothing you can do to get away from his love for you. Look in verse 11, it says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, I believe the psalmist here is showing us two things with this kind of poetic nuance. First, he looks at the literal, physical darkness, that there is nowhere that we can hide from God, that he is truly omnipresent, that he is with us always in the state of our physical darkness. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. He loves you perfectly. And there's no sin that can darken your heart to the point that Jesus' blood cannot shine light into it. And that is the second darkness that this psalm points to. Because oftentimes that we feel too dark, don't we? I've had many conversations where someone has said, I've just got to get my life together and then I'll come to church. I've got to get myself straight, then I'll follow Jesus. You can't get yourself straight. Neither can I. That's kind of the point of Jesus. If we could do it on our own, we would not have needed the cross. There's freedom and restoration from the darkness of sin because of the light of Christ seen in the blood of Jesus and the glory of the empty tomb. My friends, it is all about Jesus. Because God is glorious, you have nothing to fear, and that includes your own sin. The darkness is not dark to God. We sing a song here that reminds us often of that, this truth called tremble, and the lyrics say, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. To the Christian in this room, you have nothing to fear. God is glorious, he is with you, you are not alone. To those in this room listening who are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray that you would see the hope in this psalm for you, that your darkness is not too dark, that the love of our God is boundless. He loves you perfectly and completely. May you see the debt that you owe for your sin was paid for by Jesus on the cross. And there is freedom and hope available to you. The psalm indicates that God's omnipresence extends beyond physical and spiritual barriers. It points to his sovereign plan even in the creative nature. We see this in verse 13. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, 
the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. While this is poetic language, I believe it points to truth of who we are as humanity and to God's plan and purpose for mankind. God was intimately involved with your creation. You were not an accident. You were not a mistake. God intimately was involved with your creation while you were formed in your mother's womb. And I believe wholeheartedly that life begins at conception, but I also believe that God's plan and purpose for you began far before that. Verse 16 shows us, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God's plan and purpose for us are deep and rich. We serve a remarkable God. But if we aren't careful, we can quickly become lost in this passage. And we can think that it's all about us. Because we see those words that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but really this isn't about us. We know who this passage is about, right? Say it with me. It's all about Jesus. See, Jesus, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, was there at the creation of the world, and he was there at your creation. The point of this passage is not ultimately to point to how remarkable we are, and we are remarkable. It says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but the point of this passage is to point to the one who did the forming. You formed me. You knitted me. Wonderful are your works. It's all about him. Paul David Tripp writes, No awesome thing in creation was meant to give you what only the creator is able to give. Every awesome thing in creation is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. Read that second part again. Every awesome thing in creation, including you and I, is designed to point you to the one who alone is worthy of capturing and controlling the awe of your searching and hungry heart. Once again, the psalmist shows us the appropriate response to seeing God rightly. In verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. How precious to me are your thoughts. There is a desire to know a creator God who is more faithful than the rising sun at dawn. There is a wonder and an awe associated with him. May we also consider the thoughts of God precious and hold them dear. May we learn from them and grow in sanctification by the grace of the Holy Spirit at work within us. This is only possible for God's own. As the Father's regenerating work takes hold of our hearts and our lives are drawn by the Holy Spirit ever more into becoming more like Jesus, we are drawn into a greater desire to know and understand God. 
to submit to his rule and to his reign, to surrender to his sovereignty. My friends in this room, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, yet have no desire to grow in your relationship with him, if you call yourself guided by the Spirit, but never actually seek Him for true guidance and direction. If you say you are a Christian, but can't remember the last time that you opened the Scriptures to learn more of our great God, I would caution your heart. I would ask you to seriously take a look at your citizenship. Because if you were marked by those things, then you were guilty of a very deep double speak. You were guilty of a cognitive dissonance that if you claim Christ with your lips, but your heart is far from him. In Revelation 3, we find a passage that speaks to that kind of a heart. In verse 15 of that passage, it says, I know your works. You were neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is not the type of language reserved for children of God. God speaks of his children with love and affection, with grace and forgiveness, and it burdens my heart to say this, my friends. But it is my biggest fear that there are some in this room who would say with their lips that they love Jesus and their hearts are far from him. fear that we may be content in a lukewarm place, that we are believing a comfortable lie, hoping that we can get the best out of both kingdoms, that our eternal state is secure, and therefore we can do whatever we want to do with our lives. My friend, hear me, to be spit out of the mouth of God is not God's righteous anger at a Christian who is fully committed to him. It is not a wrist slap or a disciplinary call to those who are slacking off. To be lukewarm and to be spit out of the mouth of God is to be an enemy of God and a member of the world. You cannot be a lukewarm Christian. You are either a Christian fully devoted to seeking after God, seeking him, trusting him completely, going to him with your failures. This is not about perfection. This is about a deep desire that we see the psalmist talk about, to know God, to understand him, to walk in his ways. You are either doing these things or, my friend, you are not a Christian. You are wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. May you hear this, if this is you in this room, and be convicted to your core. Because he who became your sin when he knew no sin, who had nails shoved into his wrists and his feet, who had a crown of thorns placed upon his brow, 
the one who gave his very life for the glory of the Father and for his unconditional love for his own children. Jesus died to save sinners. And we are all sinners in need of his grace. It's God's complete and ultimate power. It's his omnipotence that makes this more evident in the remaining passages of this psalm. In verse 19, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Didn't think we were going here, did you? O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Just in case you were wondering, verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So the problem that we have with passages like this is that we think them too harsh. We think them too violent, too heavy. We ask questions like, how could a good and a loving God allow this type of talk? How would he condone this? I think when we ask that question, we don't have a completely right view of the holiness of God or the wrongness of our sin. When we see that our sin is a slap in the face to the one who gave everything for us, then we realize that this is hardly harsh. Our sin, any sin, is deserving of complete righteous punishment in light of God's holiness. This is why Jesus went to the cross, to suffer the harshness, the violence that was due us because of our sin. For David to pen these words, to say that he hates with complete hatred the things that rise up against a true and holy God should be the manner of our hearts. We should hate sin. And we should start with our own. We should kill sin in our lives so that we could be a more direct representation of Jesus. Now hear me, church. There is a way to hate sin with complete hatred and to show the beautiful love and grace of Jesus. There is a way to do these things together. We need to look no further than the example and the person and the work of Jesus. Can we again draw our eyes to the cross? And can we praise a God for the grace that is shown to us there? where with complete violence, sin was atoned for. And with complete love and grace, the righteousness of Christ was shown to us. The other problem that we have with passages like this is that we forget that we are the wicked ones. Our sin puts us in a state of enmity with God. And scripture tells us that there are none righteous, so let us not be quick to pedestal ourselves. Oftentimes when we read the Psalms, we're quick to look at the happy parts. God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We might do better to go, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Yes, God, slay the wickedness that is within me. Our response here. From this passage is to gospel our own hearts. Our response is to look to Jesus, to remember that we are only made righteous through him, and to remember that because he is all-powerful and completely sovereign, he is able 
and can do it. And it is when we see him rightly that we can respond rightly as David does here in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you hear him in this? God, would you please know my heart? Would you test me and see if I am of the caliber required to be one of your children? See if there is any sin in me. May I not be like the wicked that I just spoke of. Let me walk in your truth. Let me not walk in temporary pleasures. Let me not walk in the ways that will fail me. But instead, God, let me walk in your way, the way that is everlasting. The truth is that we don't meet the requirements. David knows that. If you've ever tried to live a perfect life, you realize it doesn't work. Alone in ourselves, we are poor, wretched, and naked. We have nothing but the guilt and the shame and the weight of sin oozing all over us. But it's all about Jesus. See, because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, when a holy God examines us, he sees Jesus. Where he would have seen pride, he sees humility. Where he would have seen lust, he sees purity. Where he would have seen lies, he sees truth. Where he would have seen greed, he sees generosity. Where he would have seen division, he sees unity. Where he would have seen hatred or racism or bigotry, he sees love and peace and restoration. Where he would have seen an enemy, he sees a friend. Where he would have seen you and me, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. One of my favorite bands is a band called My Epic. And they wrote this song called The Antidote whenever we were in college together and the lyricist Aaron pens this lyric that so beautifully captures the sentiment of our response in this song. It says, I need a heart transplant because this one doesn't love you right. Father, graft a piece of you in me. And like cancer, spread through every vein, killing every part of me until only you still remain. Church, do we want that? Do we truly want it? Do we want so much of Jesus that he would consume us like cancer? Do we want so much of him that we would say what David says in the psalm and we would mean it? Would we pray this way? Would we say, Father, see if there is any sin within me. See if there is anything not of Jesus and kill it. Do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, whatever it takes. 
In the words of the beloved hymn, Jesus, would you tune my heart to sing thy grace? Because it is all about Jesus. Jesus, that is our prayer this morning. That you would remove us from us. That you would take the sin that dives so deep within our souls at times. And you would replace it with you. God, our prayer is that you would help us to remember the work of your cross and the power of your resurrection. God, that we would know that you are all-knowing, that you are in complete control, and because of that, we don't need to be. That you are all-powerful. God, and because you are all-powerful, you provide all of our needs. We have nothing to fear, and we have no reason to seek satisfaction anywhere but then in you. So God, forgive us when we make it about us. Let it only be about you, Jesus. Let it only be about you.